live. Welcome to Seize Your Mind, the podcast about soccer, mental toughness, and life. I'm your host, Brandon Stone, but it's not about me. Today, it's about our guest, David Yates. David, how are you? I'm doing well, Brandon. Thank you, sir. How are you? Good, good. So for those who don't know David, he's from Manchester, England. He now is the current uh, Oklahoma Technical Director for the Oklahoma Soccer Association, but he has a very vast background in the sport. He played at various youth teams in Manchester. Uh, he played for Rochdale Youth FC, Manchester Schoolboys, British Army football team, various German football teams, Hamlin, Bad Piermont, and uh, Tulsa Roughnecks. And then he coached. He's got a long list of clubs he to coach. Uh, clubs in Northern Virginia, um, including SWIA, McLean, Stafford, Hurden, Reston, Chantilly. Also was the assistant director of player development for Soccer Academy Inc. in um, Manassas, Virginia. And since 2003, he's uh, been with Hurricane FC, director of coaching for NEOFC, director of coaching of the Bigsby Highlanders TSC, coached the Tulsa Revolution indoor professional team, uh, ODP, the Olympic Development Program, uh, head coach and program head, head, age head coach and program head, technical lead, and now the Oklahoma Soccer Association technical director, and is also a U.S. soccer grassroots instructor. Wow, your reputation definitely precedes you. <laughs> yeah, you need a breath or a drink? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. And so how, yeah, how, did you, how did you get to where you are now? Um, the narrative is long. The journey is just as long. Uh, but obviously growing up in England, um, football, as we call it, was, uh, was, was a big piece of my daily life. Uh, being a Man United fan, uh, just having the, the passion and desire and... Um, just having a, a laugh with some of my mates who were either city fans or, or other, I mean, just, just a camaraderie and the, the competitiveness. But uh, no, it was kind of the vessel um, that got me to where I am today. Um, I was fortunate to be around good players, um, have good uh, mentors and people that helped me grow. Um, and I've been very fortunate to, to have the experiences uh, as a player and as a coach um, that's got me into a position where I can now kind of give back to the game. So I've been, I've been blessed. Let's talk about growing up in England. Do you um, remember, like, was there a certain point where you're like, like that I remember was the day I fell in love with soccer. Do you remember some moment, special moment like that? And probably the, the first day is uh, when my dad took me to a Man United game in the Stratford end. And uh, at that time, um, basically all kids were on the top of the, the dad's shoulders I was probably about five, going on six at the time. Um, but again, football uh, back home is uh, just like your your baseball, your basketball, your football here. It depends on what blood runs through the family and, you know, what, where does your allegiance lie? Um, what part of the country uh, are you living in? Um, but, 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 but again, it's, it is. It's, it's a very um, ingrained um, kind of decision that you make because it's kind of a family thing. I mean, if you go outside the family thing, then, ooh, you kind of, uh, yeah, they're not so goody, goody, goody kid. Um, but no, uh, probably about five or six. Uh, but I played a lot, a lot of sports when I was young, but uh, football, soccer has always been my, my number one passion. And then uh, what was your first, like, official team you played for? 
that was like a big deal to you? Oof, the big deal? Um, probably uh, competing, uh, probably about 12, 13 with uh, Rochdale Youth and then obviously the Manchester School Boys. Um, so you're looking at a few hundred kids that come in. Um, it's kind of like the academy setup that we have over here now. Um, players from all over the place can come over, can come based on their, their skill level. Um, and then obviously you go through an evaluation process and if you're lucky enough, you get chosen and you get to wear the kit, you get to honor the crest and you get out there and go and play against some of the quality players. Um, so probably when I was about 12, 13, that's when kind of the, the competitive juicy started flowing. Um, the most successful team I ever played on was when I was in the army. Um, we had a, we had a lot of good players, um, but yeah. So did you have a, a favorite goal or favorite moment in the growing up? Um, <laughs> I'm an old guy, Brandon. Uh, you're asking me to <laughs> just have some problems. Um, no, uh, yes, um, I probably did. Uh, but in all fairness, I, I can't pick one or the other. Um, I had a, probably one of the, the better moments that I had is um, when I was still playing in the Army. And uh, it was the Army team when we actually played against Sheffield United. So they came over with David Bassett and, uh, and we played, um, they were doing a kind of a, a tour and we played against the, the Air Force um, and he picked me um, as the man of the match. So I got a Sheffield United soccer ball, which I don't really like Sheffield United. However, a teammate uh, and a good friend of mine uh, did, so I, I gave him the ball and, and everything else. But uh, I think we, I don't know, I think we experienced different things. Um, in different ways, if I scored great or if I didn't score, wasn't great. My my kind of thing that I want is, you know what, just go out there and do your best. And if it's good, great. And if it's not, just learn from it. So. Yeah. Um, did you know you wanted to get into coaching early on, or was that something that just kind of evolved? No, it's um, it evolved when what was that about twenty five. I was about 25 and I was uh, coming to a juncture um, in the army uh, just based on how um, the army was, um, let's say, minimizing um, active uh, active duty, especially within Europe. Um, and a very good friend of mine, kind of the biggest mentor that I had, uh, Robert Monroe Scouse, who was the coach of me when I was in the army, said, hey, why don't you start taking your coaching courses? Um, so I did. So I started taking my coaching courses and I took my FA full badge, which is the equivalent of the A license uh, over here um, in 1995. So I was 25 at the time. Um, and then just before I got out of the army, I took my UEFA B, uh, which is kind of similar to the US soccer B over here at 27. So I got a good foundation. So when I did come over to the US and started coaching over here, it kind of propelled me into the higher echelons of the coaching licenses over here, which we can't do that much now um, unless you played at a very high level. Um, but yeah, it was it was a way to for me to give back to the game because I knew that the game wasn't I wasn't going to be playing the game for much longer as a player, so I had to look up a different avenue. What was the hardest adjustment you had to make of being a player versus being a coach? Your biggest challenge. Um. I would probably say uh, communication, trying try to, try to understand the mindset of the players that you coach. As players, it's a totally different mindset. I mean, you can 
you can switch off. Or, I mean, you can be playing in front of 10,000 people. You don't hear 10,000 people. All you hear is the voices of your teammates because you're so hyper-focused into um, that consecutive um, competitive environment. Um, but communicating with kids and trying to make them kind of conceptualize from, from words in regards to demonstrations and actions and kind of presenting that environment to what you would like them to do based on their play action. So to get that across to kids, especially with me um, coming from England, I still had a pretty thick accent at the time. Um, not now, uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's difficult. And especially when we look over here um, and in our culture, we have the Hispanics, we have different ethnicities, we have different backgrounds of different people. Um, so that communication was probably the, the biggest challenge. And also the way that the American game was at the time. I first came over in 1997. The women's game was prevalent at the time. The guys game was kind of way out there. Um, so yeah, just understanding the, um, the landscape uh, and who it was that we were coming into contact with and how to get that information across to them. Interesting. Um, let's talk about well, what helped you develop your confidence as a player and as a coach. I know um, you said the environment you grew up in was very important in helping developing that. Um, tell me more about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, we kind of lived in the neighborhood and uh, um, kind of if you're good at something, you get kind of uh, opportunities. Um, so we would have a couple of sports parks, football fields, soccer fields that we would go down to. And um, you'd get all the big kids kicking around. And that was kind of your inspiration. You wanted to be with the big kids. You wanted to be, I mean, one of the big dogs. Um, and there was kind of leadership within um, that group. They knew who the, the the younger kids were and who were the better players and so forth. So you'd be knocking a ball around by the field next time, and all of a sudden you get you get your name called. Hey, Yeet, you come on over here, and you get that big gulp, and you'd be like, "Oh crap, here we go, the moment." Because honestly, if you failed, they just kick you straight back off the field, and you'd be done for another six, seven, eight months or so. So it's funny, kind of your your one moment to shine. Um, and then thankfully with the people that we knew and the older siblings. Um, I was 16 playing on men's pubs teams. I mean, playing against people that were 35, 40, 45. Um, so the, the challenge of the, the educational element of understanding how to play against different players based on age, based on ability, based on all their strengths and their weaknesses, it kind of, it kind of made you grow pretty quickly. Um, so that's where kind of that, um, the ability to kind of cipher all of the information and process it to try and make the right decision to be successful kind of sped, sped me up in, 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 in my self-growth and my self-development. So you're put into situations that basically made you learn or fail and you learned. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that was the only way. I mean, and, and it's kind of the... The, 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 it's kind of a controlling factor that I really don't <laughs> agree with here in the US, but I, I understand it because at the end of the day, the soccer ball doesn't know what gender or what age you are. If you're a good player, you're a good player. But we obviously have to moderate certain things just to make sure that we're taking into consideration the overall benefit of the players that are out there. Um, again, I grew up in the 1970s. Today's obviously the 2000s, so evolution um, has to happen. So... Yeah, I, I always like to try and kind of figure out 
what are some things that shaped people and especially people that played you grew up overseas what are some aspects of that that we can bring and implement with the kids here um, have you been able to find anything that you did uh, bring over that was kind of new to the kids here well i mean i, I talked to a lot of coaches on coaching courses about this um we um in the states we're still in our infancy of, of this sport I mean, we really haven't been playing it until on a on a larger scale model until the '90s, um, early '90s, mid '90s. Uh, this has been going on in the rest of the world for hundreds of years. Um, so with us, it's kind of the the desire, the dedication, the the I don't know, the passion inside to a certain extent, and the evolution is now starting to to, to come full cycle because I'm looking at the YouTube today. And there's a lot of great players. They've got the Messi shirts on. They've got the Ronaldo's. They've got all of these high-profile players. I mean, Mbappe and everything else. There's a little bit more understanding of the culture and that outside world. And that's where the bigger clubs are. But yet, um, the sport in the US, MLS, USL, uh, NW, uh, MPWSL, I mean, it, the, the quality is getting much, much better just because of the evolution of the generations that are now coming back into the sport from a parental side, from coaching education, just from players understanding how how great this sport is. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be interesting over the next three, four, five years to see how far uh, the development continues. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, let's talk again. You, you mentioned Robert Monroe Scouse, yep. uh, your Scouse. army coach Scouse. Sorry. Um, tell me. Well, more about him, what what was like so unique about him and what could, what did you learn from him that I could learn, someone else could learn? Um, Scouse honestly was just, I don't know, way, way ahead of the curve. I mean, he, he, he's a true definition of what a leader is because he had to manage so many different players. And you're talking a, uh, ex-professionals that have joined the army. I mean, more or less every single one of us plays semi-pro, if not kind of a little bit more in Germany while we were there. Um, he took his coaching licenses, but the one thing about it is he really never started playing until he was about 18. Um, I'm not sure if Scouts is going to see this, but his nickname was the Rat because if you had the ball, he would chase you all over the field to get it. But when he won it, this guy had just so much skill that he could just change the game on a dime. Um, but I think it's the way that he just man-managed and didn't micromanage um, the players. He gave us the freedom to to do whatever we wanted to. And if we messed up, then there would be consequences, just like anything else. Um, but he, he pushed us to, to a point to where we knew that, you know what, if it came into a game and was tied with 10 minutes to go, we'll win that game. So the mental element for us to believe in ourselves and to believe in the players that were around us. Um, and we, like I said, we had, well, let's every player was playing semi-pro. We had two players that got signed by Celtic and then went on the various ways. One of those players now is in the Scottish Premier League, uh, managing in Vanessa. Um, he played for his national team for a couple of times. So there was, there, was a, there was an eclectic, but a very strong group of players that understood their roles when we stepped on the fields. But yet when, once we got off the field, it was like a family. The scouts did a really good job at mentoring and, and just um, communicating with us. And, and I think that gets, everybody gave him respect because he was respectful to us. How did he 
instill that, you know, self-confidence and self-belief? Was it just leading by example? And Yeah, I mean, we, we, we all had the drive. We all had the ability. Um, and then it was just, you, you know what, it would, it would just be like, I don't know, driving your car down the interstate and you know what, you don't look in your side view mirror and you go to pull to your left or to your right and then you just see something. He was there just to keep us on track. He knew we could do whatever we needed to do. He was there in a very minimal, um, let's say, position. We went through the tactical element of it. We went through the understanding of breaking down player profiles and what we had to do and how we had to do it. But once we stepped on that line, he just let us get at it. And if we didn't get at it, then he'd draw the line, the line in the sand and just but then it would be a case of, no, we understand. And then it would be obviously reflection and then we'd move on game by game, moment by moment. Uh, but he was just, he was a, he, he was a good leader. Um, I'm not sure how else I can explain it, but it, it just felt, it just felt at easy. It felt normal. You cut off there for a second. The, um, the connection went bad. Sure. Uh, said it felt natural? It just felt natural. It just, I, I, I mean, we're all good players. We all had different um, ways of being led. Um, and he was, again, ahead of his curve. He understood when to talk, when not to talk, when to be direct, when to be a little more giving. Um, he just he just read us all very, very well. And we were together for a good six to eight years. So that made it a little more um, easy maybe yeah. for him. Um, but it also allowed us that time together for us to understand, you know what, if somebody looks at you a certain way, you already know what's about to happen. If somebody says a certain word a certain way, you already know something's going on. So the mannerisms, just the, 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 the different attitudes, personalities, it, it, it was. I mean, it was just like a big brotherhood. Yeah, that's definitely something I'm sure you, you carried with you because um, you have to know who, who your team is, who your subordinates are you sure. above you and uh, just a lot of soccer is about relationships no i i, I, I totally agree yeah i put in the, the list of questions i sent you i screwed up i'll admit it um <laughs> the question about lacrosse was for bruce arena he had played lacrosse <laughs> so you're like i never played lacrosse so i don't know so yeah that was my bad um, that's okay uh, I, make I, I was going to make something up. <laughs> <laughs> you would have told me because I don't know much about lacrosse. Um, another question asked was, what was uh, what was the worst thing that happened to you that ended up being the best thing that happened to you? And you talked about not succeeding at the highest playing level that you could that you could have got to. Tell me more about that. Yeah, um, I played a lot of sports when I was young. Um, I mean, just the way that our seasons um, on Rabble, we could get to do a lot of things. Obviously, um, when I went to school, you could get to do, let's say, extracurricular activities, PE and uh, lunch break, and then even after school. So I was always in the gym doing something. Um, but I'm going to go back to Munsey, uh, Scouse. Um, we played the Air Force, and I think it was about 1993. Um, and this was in preparation for us to go back over to England to play in the, the Army Cup final. Um, and we played the Air Force, uh, and we beat them just as normal. And uh, he let us go out because it was it was four days until the uh, Army Cup final. 
but he gave us a curfew uh, for midnight. There was three of us that missed the curfew. He cut us off from playing in the final. You said three of us. So I assume you were one. <laughs> yeah, yes, I was one of them. And um, we got it. We got in for like at twelve twenty, and uh, and it was yeah, it was a somber moment because we knew because we because we knew the depths of the talent that we had in the team. Anybody could be re be replaced by anybody, and I think it's because we got comfortable to a certain extent. Um, and yeah, he he made a decision, and yeah, three of us didn't even get. I mean, didn't didn't even get on the subs bench. Um, thankfully, we uh, went and won that, but it was it was an it was an awakening. Um, so and and again, Scott and I have chatted about that on on a few occasions, but it was kind of that defining moment. Um, just to understand that you know what nothing comes easy in life if you if, if you get comfortable. So that was uh, that was probably one of the one of the worst moments, yeah. And also learning that consequences to your actions are real. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and and that was another element. I mean, again, nobody was any better than anybody else, regardless of stature, regardless of friendship, regardless of what you brought to the team. There was always that accountability aspect of it because. It's just like anything. It's, it's in cycles. We did our job for six years. Then there was a new batch of young, hungry, aggressive, good players coming through that, that wanted our spots. And sometimes we thought, you know what, just because of what we've achieved, that's an automatic, you know what, my name's on the top 11. Nope, doesn't work that way. So I, like I said, thanks, thankfully it worked out and it uh, wasn't a detriment to the rest of the players. Uh, but yeah, it was something that stuck with me uh, for a long, long time and will continue to do so. Um, another question I asked was about teaching your players about visualization and you kind of touched on this when you spoke about communication and trying to explain to the younger players, you know, go from words to them visualizing a concept in their mind. Um, how do you help them, you know, visualize those things and, and what can a coach that's kind of struggling to do that, what can they do to kind of improve on that? What advice would you have for them? Um, it's, that's a bit of a loaded question, uh, but my, um, I think my simplest remark to that is I use colors. I use colors quite a lot. Um, you might get an experienced uh, coach that might just take a handful of discs and put all these discs down the ground to obviously create a space, but they could be all different colors. And then when you say, don't go outside of the square, well, kids at five, six, and seven may not be able to conceptualize what a square is or they can't see what, where that square is because it doesn't relate to them based on being a, a color. Now, so for me, I would put down all red discs and I wouldn't use the term square. I'd say, hey, try not to go past a red disc. If you do, as quick as you can, turn around, come back inside. Um, even for the older ones, uh, when we go through uh, patterns of play, hey, can green play to blue, two blue plates to white, white to orange, now blue, da, da, da. So you're a little bit more specific because they can understand a little bit more, let's say, verbalization of the play actions that you want. But the more that you can put colors in, then there's not enough room for the margin of error. So if a kid goes 20 yards past the red disc, they can't turn and say, oh, well, I didn't know where the red disc was. Well, what color's on the ground? Red. So it's not my fault or your fault. Oh, that's da, da, da. So it just, again, going back to accountability. Um, Another thing that I do is if I don't have a goalkeeper, I'll put, and again, depending on age, I'll put different color targets in the top two corners, the bottom two corners. When they get into the final act of shooting, they have to call a color. 
where that ball ends up is then going to tell me, it's going to give me a lot of feedback based on their approach, their technique, the mechanical aspect of it. What's their margin of error? Are they close? Are they way out? So that allows me then to give them some feedback, which hopefully the next time they go through the same similar situation, it's going to get a little bit better. But yeah, visualization um, is a big, big part of it. And to help with that on the mental side of it that you talked about, upon, it's a mistake. Just, and, and I kind of work in what I call a rule of threes. Um, I try and use kind of analogies um, with the same letter of three different things. Um, so it, it resonates to them mentally. So they have certain things. Um, let them make the first mistake. Let them make the second mistake. If they make the third mistake, then that's a coachable moment. Something somewhere is going wrong. Um, but again, how you communicate that and how you express that to that player um, is going to be completely different to maybe the next player down the line. Um, and that's, again, going back to your first question, the difference between a player and a coach is how do you now communicate that to every single player? Because every single player is different. But visualization, can they now try to create the understanding of what it is that they want to do or need to do based on using their mind? Then executing it, turning it into reality. Yes, yeah. I, I mean, we, 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 we do. I mean, the ball's coming in. Uh, let's say a ball's getting played to you. What's the first thing you do? I have to judge the flight. So I have to see the flight of the ball. I have to understand where it's going. So all the physics that come in, into it, the mathematics, the speed, the height, uh, all, all that stuff. It's, it's a very intricate um, element to be able to, again, get a good first touch. A lot of kids don't understand this element, but the more that you can put them into those realistic environments, and again, through repetition and consistency, then hopefully their brain will start ticking over um, and they'll get to where they need, need to get to. And kind of, the, kind of the, the big thing that we talk about in culture education is that there has to be a why. There has to be a purpose for every action that you want to do. Okay, when you can understand what the purpose is and why you have to do it, you're going to become a smarter thinker. Um, and that's all it is, just just how quickly you can process all that information and how quickly you can get your body to do what it needs to do. Visualization in terms of like mental rehearsal, like when you're at home before you go to bed, do you did you ever do any uh, like going through plays in your mind? Um, um, no, because coaching when I was young, Brandon, wasn't a really big thing. I mean, we just used to have dads on the sideline. And, and because, again, we would be watching match of the day on a Saturday night. We would be going down to the local uh, football field on Saturday afternoon, playing everything else. It was, it was autonomous for us. It was natural. Um, we were in it and around it and watched it for so long. Uh, again, we, we did analyzation by watching the game because we had our – role models that play in our positions. What are they going to do today? What can I now go on, let's say, track tomorrow? And does it come off? And if it doesn't, great, da, da, da. Um, kids today are a little more technology-based. Um, so again, um, for them, they've got to now get back into the physical reality of actually getting out there and trying to do it. Um, and I think, and I don't, I don't want to put this across the board, but I believe that we, as coaches, as facilitators, um, as mentors, need to allow kids more freedom to express themselves. And unfortunately, we condition them sometimes a little bit too much not to see what they're capable of doing. Um, and that could hold the kid back a little bit, or it could hold us impacting that kid, the kid's growth uh, a little bit more by understanding where they're at, where we want to get them to, and what's the next step or steps in the process to get them there. Um, so for me, Honestly, it was a it was a moment by moment. 
Um, I, I had an uncanny knack of being able to see the field very, very quickly. Um, and one of my greatest assets was being able to play in one and two touch. Um, and, and again, I used that kind of comment and explanation to some of my players uh, that were kind of like me. I wasn't the, the fastest guy on the t team. I was pretty decent athletically, but I was extremely quick, but I was very, I was very quick up here. So when they came to close me down, I released it. When they didn't close me down, now I could take that extra touch. Um, so it's just understanding your strengths and understanding uh, the strengths of the players that you're playing against. And, and very, very quickly, like you said, visualization, uh, analysis of understanding the principles of play, and then just executing what you think is right. And if, it's, if it works, great. And if it doesn't, try not to make that same mistake the second time. If you do, try not the third time, because that's when you're probably going to hear your name called and you're going to take a little rest on the bench. Right. Yeah. Um, we uh, we talked about goal setting, uh, and you said you you set personal goals, you set short-term goals, mid-term goals, long-term goals. Um, you do day by day, week by week, month by month. Every three months, you you uh, reflect, and every you set goals every six and twelve months. Tell me more about that process. What are some of the goals that you have for this year, for next year? Um, tell me. Like what, what keeps you going when the goals are not being reached? What keeps you going? What keeps you going if the goals are getting reached too fast? How do you, you know, change it up? Sure. Um, I'm pretty fortunate that um, I have opportunities in a multi-tier platforms. So when I go to my continue coach education uh, with US soccer, I'm surrounded by, let's just say on, on an annual, 50 or 60 of the greatest minds in soccer coaching. So I get to learn. I get to pick the brains. I get to listen to them. I get to soak up all of that knowledge and experience, which then allows me obviously to come back to Oklahoma and start to disperse that on my coach education and so forth. Be it as the technical director, I have um, different responsibilities. So again, uh, it challenges me in different ways. So ODP, even as a father, even as a friend, even as a, uh, a private trainer sometimes. My, my number one goal is to make sure that I continue to give back to the game that gave so much to me. And that's the driving force. Regardless of what crest I have on my chest, regardless of what uh, level of interaction I'm having, um, it would be irresponsible and disrespectful of me not to value this game. Um, and again, it's the greatest game in the world. And again, we live in a country that has 325 million people. The girls, the women have done a really, really good job uh, making sure that they pick a handful of 24, 26 players to go out and compete at all the um, levels of competition they do. The guys are going to get that because if we can't get 26 players that can reach the semifinal or the final of the World Cup in the next 10 years, then we need to drastically look at ourselves as an organization and try to think about, you know, what, what do we need to change? Because we have the ability. I see it every day. I see it every weekend. There are a lot of good players out there. Yeah, there definitely are. I hope you do make it soon. Um, so what type of uh, goals have you set for yourself personally for, for this year? Personally, um, 
it's it's unfortunate because those goals have been put back on a uh, let's say a pedestal as of right now. Obviously with COVID nineteen going yeah. on, um, unfortunately the soccer education world, um, there's a lot of areas that are not where we we are right now in phase three, uh, which allows us to kind of um, do the normal coach education, even though we're uh, very mindful uh, of the safety protocols. But, which is um, a, but yeah, which is wanna, a great great um, question. Which is how has how have you adapted then to the COVID nineteen? Yeah, uh, yeah, I'll I'll come back to that one in a second if that's okay. Sure. Uh, but basically, my my two biggest goals: one is um, to be a national instructor, so I can get up to the A, Bs, and Cs. C is my next step, so I have to uh, do an apprenticeship uh, of a course, and then I get into the Cs, and exactly the same with the Bs and the As. Um, and then the other one is to become an assistant or a head coach of a South Region ODP team, uh, so I can impact players from all over the South to Southeast. Um, and obviously help them on, on, on their journey. Um, so those are kind of my two main goals um, on the coaching education side of it and ODP. On the state technical director, it's to, it's to listen. I mean, there's a lot of fragmentation going on right now based on U.S. club and U.S. YS. Um, and each to their own. I mean, I'm not going to say one is better than the other. I'm going to say that there's, there's options um, for clubs to do either or. Uh, unfortunately, um, we're in a bit of a, I don't know, a tug of war situation right now. Uh, um, but hopefully it can get better over the next 12 to 18 months to where that we we have a landscape, we have a competitive environment to where the best teams in Oklahoma are actually competing against the best teams in Oklahoma. Um, but that's that's an ongoing thing, and that's kind of uh, the goal that I've set as the state technical director. Um, but it is difficult, uh, going back to the COVID-19. Um, I've actually just listed uh, 10 coaching courses, eight grassroots and two D licenses. I'm going to do what we call a blended version um, to where all the classroom stuff is done virtually. Um, and then there's going to be minimal uh, field um, time, uh, but they had to get through that performance uh, element for them to be able to go into the next license and so forth. So. We're trying to get out there um, as much as we can, try and keep things as much as normal as possible. Um, and then we do have a C license coming up at the end of the year, but we're just trying to determine uh, which viable option will be best um, towards that, that that time frame, what's going to be best for the candidates. Because um, what we should be as a coach is player-centered and as an instructor, candidate-centered. So it's not about what, what could you do for me, it's about what can I do for you. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're thinking on all levels to try and Get get those options out there. Servant leadership. Yes, sir. For us who have never done any coaching courses, and like, let's say, I want to get into coaching in Oklahoma. What's my first sure. step? What what are what are the different rankings of licenses? Where do I start? Where would I go to get stuff done? Like, pretend like I'm a. 18-year-old college kid that's never looked into anything yet. Sure. Um, well, I mean, if you're an 18-year-old college kid and if, if you played, you always have the connection with a former coach. Um, so you can always reach out to someone that you know. Um, then, obviously, you've got your state association. Um, and then we would obviously just uh, guide you into what we call the learning center. And um, in the learning center, it breaks down all the coaching courses and what you have to do to become eligible. Um, but uh, something I'm trying to get up and running once everything 
um, gets back to a little bit more normality. And I've had these conversations uh, with some uh, club coaches is to try and get players because to get into the grassroots, you had to be 16 or older. So now you've got some of the, let's say the, the juniors or the seniors of kids in high school. So we can do high school coaching courses so they can start their pathway um, at a very early age. Because to go from a novice coach to an A-licensed coach, it's probably going to take you about eight years in today's world. So if you get started when you're 16 or 18, you could be in a really, really good position by the time you're 24, 26. Um, there's a big need, obviously, for female coaches. Um, that's a big proponent of U.S. soccer right now, trying to get as many female coaches that we can into the game, um, not just on the girls' side. Uh, there's a lot of other changes that may be happening uh, down the pipeline. Um, but again, just to uh, just to understand the process, um, but the information is out there, then it's going to have to come from the player to obviously take the first step or as a parent coach. Um, and we're seeing that right now to where there's a lot of parents that used to play that now that now the kids are getting old enough to come back into it uh, but are putting their kids into it. So kind of the the landscape and kind of the, I'm going to call it the, the soccer savviness to a certain extent. There's a lot more parents in today's world that actually know more about the game than what happened 10, 15, 20 years ago. So they're a lot more knowledgeable, uh, which is great. Um, but yeah, uh, reach out to somebody or reach out to the state association and we can definitely guide you and we can facilitate and we can obviously get you uh, started on that coaching pathway. Uh, back here to my list of questions. Uh, what was the best comeback game and how did you keep your players from giving up? And you said it wasn't a comeback game. You had lost, but it was a 93 boys team for ODP that won the uh, regional ODP championship in 2009. Tell me about that game and that whole experience. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there was a comeback game, uh, but I just can't remember it. Um, but this one resonates with me quite a lot. Um, it took myself and my assistant coach, Jake Curry, who was on the west side of the state, about three years to get this group of young men together. Um, and we had a good group of young men. Um, and we went through a Christmas training camp uh, to where the kids came into Tulsa for a weekend. And they stayed at the, the houses of the kids that lived in Tulsa the following weekend, went to Oklahoma City, and they did vice versa. Then we went down to New Orleans uh, to play for the regional ODP championship. We went down there with no expectations. Um, we won the first game. We won the second game. We won the third game. We, we won the tournament. And it was the first time that it had ever been done. Uh, for an Oklahoma ODP team, regardless of gender. So then we went to Frisco, um, I think it was in April or May, um, and New Orleans was in February. So we played Region 1, um, and we ended up winning that game 6-0. Um, so then we got to play Southern California in the final, and we knew we were going to, I mean, be tested. But the game was a great game. Um, yes, uh, it was, I think it was 2-2. Two-two at the end of full time. So then we went into the first period of overtime, ended up being three-three, and then Southern California just had a little more juice, had a few more plays that they could bring in off the bench at the end, and um, they ended up winning four-three in double overtime. Um, but the look of achievement and success on all of the boys' faces, and even I mean, there probably was by the end of the game, there's about four or five thousand people stood around the field just watching this game. Because everyone was like, what, seriously, Oklahoma against Southern Cal? And uh, at the end of the game, I went up to Hoffy. He was a good friend of mine. Uh, he was coaching our team at the time. And he just looked at me. He's like, <sighs> I was like, nah, don't worry about it, bro. 
but um but yeah that was that was a defining moment to to kind of, it was kind of a david and goliath moment um we didn't go with our expectations but you know what everything just came together um and we represented they represented themselves extremely well they represented the team extremely well and they also represented the state extremely well um so that that was kind of a a moment uh, in my coaching career that i remember forever so well, I'm sure a lot of that tournament was won months before on the training field. Uh, uh, yeah, we were, yeah, we well, we 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 were fortunate. Like I said, I mean, we we had a good group of parents and a group good group of kids that bought into the goal uh, based on the expectation. Um, and then uh, Matt Fancher was the state director of coaching at the time, and we actually hired um, a child of us. And we went down to Frisco and we were down there three days early. So we were training in the morning. We were going doing group activities in the afternoon, creating a family bond and everything else, just like I was used to when I was in the army. Um, just like it is when you go and play collegiately or whatever else, you, you, you get that environment. You get that do or die factor. I mean, it's, I mean, fight or flight. Um, and it was a really, really, really good experience for them. And we've had two or three of those kids. I mean, some of those were national team players. I mean, national pool players, some of them have played professionally. Um, some of them are now back into the game coaching, high school-wise, club-wise. So they're now back on the back end of that cycle, um, giving back to the sport that gave so much to them. Um, so it's, it, it's good to see. You spoke about group activities. What are some good group activities for teams that if someone's struggling to find some good ideas to you know, create some team bonding, what are some fun things you've done in the past? And I might have to run that by my HR department. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, no, I mean, I mean, the simple things are, you know, you know what, having a, having a swim party. I mean, even going out and, you know, what, just temp, I mean, camping in the backyard. Um, we have all these other activities that we can do now. I mean, like uh, all these trampoline parks. I mean, even putt putt. I mean, the idea is to to try and let the mind kind of get away from 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 where it is. I mean, because just like the body, you exercise the body five days a week, it needs recovery. You exercise the mind all the time, it still needs recovery. So meditation, I mean, manifestation, I mean, just reading a book, doing something. But within the, I think within the process of um, doing the group activities, there's got, there still has to be a purpose. What is it about? Um, and I don't know. I had a older um, girls group a long time ago uh, when I was back in Northern Virginia. And we kind of camped out that night couple of the parents and me supervised and uh, they had to write down one thing on a piece of paper that nobody else knew and then they had to tell it to, uh, to the group of girls the reason behind that wasn't to um, to belittle anybody or, or do anything else uh, the idea was to make them vulnerable um, but also give them courage because then the, the players around them would understand certain different things. And again, these were older, older plays, so emotionally wise, they could um, handle that to a certain extent. And some of it was fun, and some of it was really, really deep. But once you put yourself out there, then you know what, you, the support element um, from the players around you becomes a lot more. Because we used to have a, <laughs> uh, a saying when we played, uh, it was the three musketeers, all for one and one for all. Once you step out on that field, it's all for one and one for all. So you're not gonna play your, your best game every single game. So. If I have a really poor game one, one day, you know what? I've got somebody else covering my six. They might have a bad game the next day, 
I got them coming out. And that was the, the kind of the group mentality that we had, but yet we had, we had the, the individual mentality as well to be able to push ourselves through barriers that some players didn't want to go through. So again, it depends if you want it really fun, depending on the age of the player, it depends on the, the outcome that you're looking to achieve. Uh, but there's lots of fun stuff you can get out there and you can do. So it just takes a little bit of research and also understand the personalities uh, of the players that you have. And I think uh, on that writing down a piece on a piece of paper or something, no one knows. I think that also creates a lot of trust too, by as like a byproduct of it. No, definitely. I, I mean, because again, it's something nobody knows. So you, I mean, one, it's. Uh, I, I mean, you're making yourself vulnerable. You're trusting the people that that are out there. Um, but you're all in the same environment. You're all there together doing the exact same thing. So it kind of. Um, kind of makes it fair to a certain extent. Um, and then outside of that, then who knows what can happen outside of that. Um, but again, that, that deeper level of trust. Uh, and, th and that goes all the way down. I mean, even I had to write something down. The assistant coach had to write something down. Uh, um, so it was every single person just went out there and just said, hey, this is what I want you to know. Um, you kind of like it, love it, love it, whatever. doesn't matter. But this is, this is what I'm telling you about me. Um, and that's, that's heartfelt. Once you start creating those relationships, that's a difficult one to break. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your pregame rituals and superstitions. Um, not the R-rated ones. <laughs> <laughs> you joked around. I really didn't have that many. I mean, I was a just, I mean, just go by whatever it was. The Kind of the only two that I can really recall is I always used to put my left boot on first. Um, and I, uh, in the old days, we never had the elastic tongs where you can put on the, your front set of studs nowadays. And now these are lightweights where you can just have the socks on or whatever else. So we always used to have to tie the shoelaces. So I always used to tie my shoelaces in a certain way. And I always used to put the knot on the outside of my shoe because that's the surface I use the least. Um, you got a lot of kids nowadays that tie the double knot or the triple knot, and it's right on the bridge of the foot. So when he comes out to strike for a ball, ow, ow, ow. And you're like, seriously, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, another one with my laces is I always tie a knot in the end of my lace. So, because I always used to pull my laces up so I could just slide my foot in. So the lace would never come out of the, mm. of the, loop, of, of the, of the loophole. Um, the only other thing is um, basically just before or just after I got on the field to go and play, then I would have put my shin pads in. Um, but that was kind of the, the only kind of rituals that I had. Um, uh, apart from that, it was all about just playing the game. So, I think rituals are important. And, you know, people are superstitious and say, oh, that doesn't work or it does work. Or I, scientifically, I don't think they work. For a human being who believes it works, sure. it works. So, yeah, for the, for, for the emotional side, satisfaction it does i mean you go through your routine i mean for the most part everything's about routine and, and, it, and it is uh, i agree with you if for some reason your routine is broke then there's always that that, that element of doubt and then that is going to affect the mind um, unfortunately i mean the brain is the most important part of anything that you do i mean sports sports related i say the brain controls the body so the body can control uh, the ball it has to. Everything starts right here and resonates and goes downwards. So if you cannot be comfortable, um, be conscious to everything that you're doing and, and be calm in those moments, because uh, that's one of the other things that I think if we could 
help kids to understand that, you know what, if the game is being played at 100 miles an hour, you only have to be thinking 30 miles ahead of the, the ball. So the idea is that we shouldn't be thinking and reacting just at the speed of the game. We should be looking to control it to a certain extent. But you can't do that if you're not comfortable. If you're not content in your preparation to a certain extent, then it's going to offset your decision making. True, true. What words of advice would you have to a, let's say, 16-year-old player who's trying to figure out, you know, college is coming up in two years. If you could give them one one thing, one piece of advice, what would it be? Well, I mean, I mean, kind of the, the big piece of advice is, you know what, you're called a student athlete for a reason. Okay, you're a student before an athlete. So academically, i.e. going to the right institution, um, the right university, uh, for what it is that you want to continue 10 years, 15, 20, 25 years down the, down the line, because it's a very small percentage of players that get the opportunity to go on one play collegiately, from collegiately to semi-pro, from semi-pro to pro to international and so forth. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's made well-educated decisions. And regardless if it is academic or athletic, you know what, just give it all you've got and ultimately enjoy the experience. Because if you can't enjoy the experience, then you know what, why do it in the first place? Um, and just, and again, and, and, and if, we, if we, as in the soccer community, do our job, we can hopefully prepare these kids at a younger age so they can be autonomous critical thinkers. They can make decisions based on what they want, not what everybody else wants. Um, and then again, it goes, comes back to the motivation, the accountability, the responsibility. The more that we can afford them that opportunity, hopefully by the time that they're 16 and 17, they've got most of the bad decisions out of the way. Mm -hmm. So hopefully the next couple as they go, and it, and it is, is continued reflection. Um, and just understand that it's okay to make a bad decision. Just don't do three times. Beautiful, beautiful. I think this is a great place to stop. Do you have any last words of wisdom to add before we wrap up? No, any, I don't. I uh, Any words of advice to cool. me as I continue with this podcast? And I mean, I mean, just uh, the, the sport is growing. The sport is growing. I mean, it's, it's getting better. It's getting better. Um, we have to understand that society today is a lot different than what it used to be. We have to trust in our kids. We have to give them the opportunities to make mistakes. Um, and then obviously with our jobs as mentors and facilitators and as parents, as role models, uh, be very positive and understanding. Um, and just let them enjoy, enjoy the experience. With you, young man, just continue to do what you're doing. You're obviously an inspiration. Um, you're doing extremely well at the podcast. Um, I'm humbled and I appreciate you inviting me on to today's podcast. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. So I appreciate it, Brennan. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and honor having you on. And uh, I know I learned a lot. I always, always, we forgot to talk about the four parts <laughs> of the past. Sorry. Before the That's okay. What? Well, let's start this in real quick. Um, the four, uh, when I, I were talking about uh, at the Tulsa Roughnecks, it was before FC Tulsa, um, he was talking about the four parts of a, of a past. And it was accuracy, weight. Yep. yep. Um, Direction, um, speed, the timing. Timing. And then last one was disguise. Elaborate what you meant about disguise. Well, disguise is um, it's kind of the the untalked about kind of next. Um, what's the word? Out? It, it's kind of the unknown. Uh, I mean, we we as players we read we we, we read the game. 
what are we doing when we're doing the game? We're looking at why players are moving in certain positions at certain angles at certain speeds and everything else based on if they had the ball or they don't have the ball because obviously that's what we break it down to, what we call the principles of play, principles of defense, principles of attack. If I had the ball, it's kind of just like, I know that if I open up my body to the right, that right back may pinch in. My number 11 on my left foot, or my left midfield player, that might create two more inches. I know I have the space to hit a 50-yard ball and get it into a more dangerous position. So I kind of like, I give them the eyes, just like we do on PKs, maybe give the cue, let my body, but then use the mechanical element to to do something completely different to what the other team was thinking. That just gets us into a little bit of more dangerous area. Um, so these guys, one touch passes, you see all that creativity in and around the box, um, little given goals, all the all the little fancy stuff that the players do nowadays. That's just a little, uh, again, uh, deception to a certain extent to make one player think that you're going to be doing something and then it kind of freezes them or makes them do something that you know you're not going to do, which just gives you that extra split second or fraction of a second to get into the, ne the, ne the next level. Um, and this is kind of the education we want the players to know because even receiving the ball, there's a set certain amount of principles, principles of, of offense. And again, there's, and they're called principles for a reason. They're called principles because they have to be done in a set kind of um, sequence for them to be as successful as possible. So yeah, so accuracy, then the weight of the pass, then the timing, when, where, and why. And then obviously the disguise element of it. So, so to be unpredictable is the goal. Yes. Yeah. To a certain extent, and that's kind of the the, the last piece of the puzzle. Um, and that's probably only your top ten percent of players that really get to understand that element and when to use it. Everybody else, unfortunately, is a little bit too what I call one-dimensional. You you can read what's going to happen, which hopefully we can look on over the next cycle of young players coming through. Awesome, awesome. David, thank you so All much. Right, brother. No, no problem, great, man. You great are chat, and I hope to see you soon. Sounds good, brother. Take care. Take care, bro.